Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about one of... The most useful inventions of the last hundred years, we're going to be talking about the history of the bicycle. I tell you this, I bloody love a bit of a bike ride. Maybe you do too. They're incredible machines. It's quite amazing that it took us as long as it did uh, to, to get around to inventing them. Um, obviously, you know, modern bikes, very fancy. They're filled with all sorts of bits and pieces and bells and whistles and, you know, all that stuff that's a bit more complicated. But at the most fundamental level, the bicycle is a very, very simple device. And it took us thousands and thousands of years to go from inventing the wheel to, you know, whacking two of them in a straight line and harnessing just the power of our own bodies to move them, which is a great shame because bikes move you know, very bloody quick for a relatively small amount of energy. They're a hell of a lot more efficient than running, for example. Um, and they have played a, a pretty significant role in the way that uh, that we travelled, you know, over over short to medium, and in some cases, long distances as well, as we'll talk about. Anyway, look, bikes are great. I'm not going to hide how much I like them. I'm looking forward to sharing what I learned about the history with you because it's quite interesting. Um, but while learning about the history, one of the things that's, that, that sort of stood out to me here is it's not very long. Not very long. It's barely two centuries. And considering considering the, um, uh, you know, the technological prerequisites for a proper biker wheels and metal working and, you know, basic stuff like sprockets and chains, we probably could have got around to inventing them a lot earlier. But as it is, however, the history of the bicycle, it's not as long as you might have thought. Um, still full of, you know, plenty of interesting little details. So uh, so let's get to it here. Thanks before we begin. Thanks to Belgian Bart for suggesting I have a look into bikes. Uh, Bart suggests that many bloody topics a week. Uh, I'm bound to get around to his at some point. So uh, cheers very much, Belgian Bart, for, for the suggestion of having a look into bikes here. Anyway, here we go with the history of the bicycle. Get those helmets on, pop your feet in the toe clips because we are off. Here we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to 1817 when the first proper uh, bicycle-like device was developed. If you want to talk about the first ever bicycle, it's actually kind of tricky. Depends on where you want to draw the line. What is a bicycle? So we're going to sort of get through the different shades of grey here. I mean, we could go back earlier than 1817 if you want to, but from that, I mean, earlier than this and things start to get really, really hazy. For instance, in 1792, there was a story about a device with uh, two wheels affixed to a wooden frame, right, that you could ride, um, except its wheels didn't turn from side to side. Like, it, you couldn't steer it. You had to lean by steering. It was basically a frame, like a, a rigid frame with two wheels on it. But it almost certainly didn't exist in any case, so uh, so we don't have to worry about that. But you go, you go back even further. I mean, you go back to around 1500, apparently there were some sketches supposedly done by a, a pupil of Leonardo da Vinci, but there's a lot of doubt as to whether these are genuine or, you know, whatever. So we're going to stick to the, the, you know, the steadier footing here. And, uh, you know, broadly speaking, there isn't much in the way of evidence for bicycles or bicycle-like machines until, as I say, 1817. This is the steadier footing I'm talking about. And in 1817, we meet a, a German fella <clears throat> whose name was Karl von Dreis, right? Now, just over 200 years ago, as I say, in 1817, Dreis invented the first... Uh, what are we calling here? So it wasn't really a bike. It was bicycle adjacent. Um, and is actually it's actually still in use today by a certain segment. Very, very popular 
amongst a certain section of society. We'll come to in a sec. Uh, it looked like a bike. Certainly, it looked like a bike. It had two spoked wheels, one in line with the other, and a, the, one of the wheels was turnable. Uh, you could steer it with handlebars. Um, the, uh, th- this device also had a brake. Uh, it could reach speeds of over 13 kilometers, which isn't too bad for a first try, I reckon. It, I mean, if you know, if you turn it on its side, it, it, it certainly looked like it had a very similar sort of silhouette to a bike, but it was missing something very important that today, you know, almost every single bike ever made has. It was missing pedals or and, and, and a chain drive and anything like that because it was propelled in an altogether different way. Now, you remember I just said that it's very popular, it's still still in use today, amongst a certain section of society. That section of society happens to be small toddlers because they still cut about today on miniature versions of Dreiser's invention. You know them little wooden bikes you see toddlers on? You know, the ones that got no pedals or anything, they just use their legs to push themselves along the ground. Like, I guess, what would you call them? Like, um... Like little Flintstones bikes, I guess, you know, they, they, they've got no pedals, nothing. You just kind of walk or run with the with this, you know, with the, the frame and the wheels between your legs here. Dreis invented an adult sized version of that. And believe it or not, it became actually quite popular uh, with, uh, with, with some people after a while, particularly with wealthy, cool young men who were known at the time as dandies. I, I don't know how, like, it's just one of the uncoolest things I think, you know, it's possible to, to conceive of riding a giant toddler bike along. But, you know, these blokes are going around cutting about in their top hats and their gloves, having a great time as they whiz around. But in all seriousness, this invention, uh, it, it impressed a lot of people, you know. Uh, he called it, uh, Dreis called it the Laufmaschine, which means running machine, although it ended up with a ton of different names, um, Velocipede, Dreisener, a hobby horse, or because of all the dandies that rode it, uh, it became known also as a dandy horse. Uh, the first one that tries to display to the public weighed 22 kilograms, around twice the, the weight of a regular hybrid ride, uh, road bike today. And it was made of wood. So, you, I mean, 22 kilograms of wood, it was, a, it was a hefty, bulky thing. But the most interesting thing about what it was made of in, in terms of it being made of wood is the wheels were also made of wood. They, they didn't have tyres. Tyres tires were decades away. Tyres weren't going to be invented until the 1880s. So these wheels were basically like the wheels you'd find on a cart. They were wood, right, covered with a layer of iron. Anyway, Dreis, he showed off his invention. And, you know, while it did pick up in some circles, interest quickly died down, particularly thanks to the fact that it was banned in several major European cities due to the accidents that it caused. People would whiz around down the street, knock people over, whatever else. You know, it doesn't, doesn't seem like these... Uh, devices were, were necessarily the easiest things to control in the world, particularly, you know, if the brake gives out or doesn't work properly, you're trying to stop a 22-kilogram mass of, of wood with uh, with your bare... Well, not, I was going to say your bare feet, but, you know, probably your booted feet. Although there were stories about how quickly riding, riding, running along on one of these things would actually wear out your boots. All these dandies who were going around cutting about in these, uh, on these, in these love machine, they, uh, their, their boots, they'd complain because it, it had run out their boot, uh, wear their boots out so quickly. Anyway, interest, uh, as I say, due to the banning, that sort of stuff, it died down. But you know, it didn't go away altogether. And as news of this invention spread further throughout Europe, others picked it up. They improved upon the design. And by 1819, two years later, these machines became actually wildly popular, like much, much more popular than they had been when, when, it, was, uh, when it was first released, especially in Britain. There was a bloke whose name was Dennis Johnson, and he released his own model. And this became a fashion item, right? It was, it was, a, it was a, a better and sort of, you know, improved upon model. 
Um, and all these foppish young men in London, they're zooming about like toddlers at a playground. I mean, can you imagine this? Their legs flailing on either side of the velocipede, you know, wearing their boots out, having a great time. But, you know, like every great fashion craze, interest in this wore off. You know, it is, this is the case with all the must-have fashion items across the years. Remember fidget spinners a couple of years ago? No one's got them anymore, and it was the same with the Trizina here. Um, uh, but it didn't stop people from working on the idea. You know, slowly but surely, in the coming decades, uh, there were attempts to improve upon Trizina's uh, design in, in the, uh, between the 1820s and 1840s. People did stuff like added extra wheels, turned them into, you know, tricycles or even quad quadricycles. I don't know. Probably should have looked that one up. Um, but the extra wheels obviously meant you didn't have to balance on them. You could just the 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 they'd sort of hold themselves up. They wouldn't fall over if uh, if you weren't if you weren't holding them up. Um, and interestingly, while we didn't, we're not quite getting pedals or anything like that. Uh, during this period, people attempted to add hand cranks to them, so <laughs> you didn't have to run along. So imagine trying to steer with one hand, crank with the other. Uh, in order to keep the thing going, it wasn't the most practical uh, development that the uh, that the velocipede saw. But ultimately, these machines they were heavy, they were unwieldy, they were difficult to get rolling. None of the none of these designs did very well. Honestly, they didn't really catch on. Now there are some other stories of some important breakthroughs in bicycle technology during this period in the first half of the nineteenth century. Not all of it is. 100% historically confirmed. There are still arguments today as to, you know, even who we should call or credit with the idea of uh, of inventing the bicycle here. Um, but I want to talk, to talk to you briefly about a guy in the 1830s, Scottish fella. His name was uh, Kirkpatrick Macmillan. And he supposedly built a bicycle-like machine, not 100% proven, as I say, but this machine had treadles. Now, if you're not sure what a treadle is, if you think about one of them old school, you know, one of the really old um, sewing machines, you know, not ones that you plug in, one that you would had a sort of pedal, like a weird kind of pedal thing at the bottom that goes up and down, up and down. You'd use your foot to operate it. He built a a bike or, you know, whatever you want to call it at this stage with these, right? Not pedals that pushed uh, that, that uh, pushed a crank around, a crankshaft around or anything else like that with a chain drive, but treadles. The, basically great big pedals like on a Stairmaster that pushed the bike forward. But again, not 100% if this actually existed. If it did, it looked ridiculous. You can go and see pictures of what this machine supposedly looked like. Its back wheel was much bigger than its front. It looked like a two-wheel tractor, honestly, with these silly treadles to move it along. So not 100% sure on that one. But we do know that the first, the earliest confirmed pedal-driven bicycle, it dates back to 1853, and it was created by a different German bloke. This bloke's name was Philipp Moritz Fischer. Now, Fischer, the story goes, he had ridden velocipedes as a youngster. He had been cutting about on Dreiser's machines, right, these Laufmaschine, um, and he used the design of these earlier velocipedes as a basis, right, as a starting point to invent this bike with pedals. Now, you can still go and see the bike that Fischer invented. It's called the Trettkörbelfahrrad, and it's on display in a museum in his native Schweinfurt. But it never caught on properly for whatever reason. And it wasn't until the 1860s that some very great strides were made in bicycle designs. The first pedalled bike to catch on properly, it wasn't German, it wasn't British, it was in fact French. Although there are still debates to this day as to who was responsible for, the, for, for this invention and, and, and you know, the, the leap forward that was kind of made here with this, uh, the, the first mass-produced pedal bicycle. Could have been a fellow whose name was Pierre Michaud, could have been his son Ernest Michaud, or maybe another fellow altogether whose name was Pierre Lallemand. We're not 100% sure. We don't know. There are still debates that rage to this day as to who exactly was the first person to do this. But we do know that around 1864, someone got a velocipede, 
like the one that Therese made, affixed cranks with pedals on them to the front wheel. So instead of pushing along the ground, you sat on a seat on the frame and pushed the pedals with your feet and off you went. You didn't have to run along the ground like a toddler at a playground anymore. Now, other changes were made. The frame went from wood to metal, which made them easier to uh, to manufacture, especially on mass. You know, these were mass produced. Um, and as a result of the, the changes that were made and the fact that it was, you know, an operation that was well-financed and, uh, and, and well-marketed, it finally took off, right? Regardless of who invented it, uh, this this design of, uh, of of bicycle, and I guess we are now really just calling them bicycles, this was the one that made it. And it was Pierre Michaud, the bloke I said before, he started making them in earnest, right? He was churning out bikes, mass producing them as people realized how useful they were as a form of personal transport. But... If you compared the bikes that Michaud was making back then with the ones you have today, you wouldn't believe how clunky and difficult to ride these things were. They had so many problems. They were very, very heavy. They were made of, you know, iron and, and they, they weren't easy to get around. But that's just where it starts. Because as it turns out, it's very difficult to steer a wheel that you're also pedaling. Right, Your feet have to stay on the pedals as you turn the wheel, which is tricky. You're trying to turn the wheel from left to right while your feet are going basically sort of back to front or, you know, front, like you're operating on, on, on different, what is it, rotational planes here with your feet pedaling and you turning the wheel uh, from side to side. And it was very common to get your feet caught in the spokes and sometimes it would cause injury. Even, you know, you get your, 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 your trouser leg or whatever else, uh, you know, something you're wearing caught in the, uh, caught in the, in the bike's uh, mechanisms. And it, it, it wasn't great having to pedal the, the same wheel that you were steering. But the real issue was really with them, and the biggest difference between these old bicycles and bikes today is that they weren't very fast. They were really slow, in fact, because think of this, right? Whenever you turn the so the pedals are directly affixed to the front wheel. So whenever the pedals turn, they turn the wheel at a one to one ratio. For every rotation of the pedals, the wheel turns one rotation as well. So your feet have to move effectively, you know, not quite as fast as the wheel because the wheel is bigger than the, the the circle that your feet are drawing, but you're very limited by the fact that you can't build up that much speed. It, it just became impossible to pedal faster at high speeds considering the fact that the wheel was traveling, you know, within an appreciable distance of your, within appreciable speed of, of, of your feet. So I, I'm not explaining this super well. It's hard to sort of do it without visualizing, but essentially... If you've ever ridden one of those like kids' trikes where the where the the pedals are attached to the front wheel, you'll know that you just can't go that fast because your feet are locked in at a one to one ratio with the uh, with with the wheel that they're pedaling. So no matter how fast you pedal, the the wheel is still only moving at, at you know roughly the same speed as your feet. Although it's not exactly the same, obviously, because the, as I say, the wheel is bigger. Anyway, anyway, anyway. The, the this was you know enough for people to realize that this model could be improved upon. But what I really like about these bikes and during their short-lived career, and I haven't told you the name of these bikes because this is what this is what I find just absolutely fascinating about this particular iteration, this model of the bicycle. They were called the Bone Shaker. And the big problem with riding them is because if you weren't riding them on anything other than a particularly smooth surface, Riding along a, on a bike at any kind of speed with metal wheels and no tyres, it did not make for a comfy or smooth ride. I mean, you can just imagine riding along a cobbled street on metal wheels, minimal suspension, basically no shock absorption. You're just raw dogging it, basically, and it 
would not have been pleasant. I think the name Bone Shaker is particularly well bloody chosen here. Now, if you're on dirt roads, it was a little bit easier. If you're on, you know, other sort of softer surfaces, it wasn't too bad. But again, these were slow, they were cumbersome, they were unwieldy, particularly when you look at how good bikes are today. And they were very difficult to, uh, to, to get around with any kind of efficiency because, again, of the one-to-one ratio between the pedals and the wheels. So, um, there were some improvements that were tried to ameliorate these issues. Uh, people tried solid rubber tyres uh, to, to absorb some of the bumps. Obviously, we haven't got the inflatable pneumatic tyre yet. Uh, ball bearings were added to uh, make the wheels turn more smoothly. But overall, riding a bone shaker, as you can imagine, I mean, it's called a bone shaker. It's not a comfy thing to ride. I mean, that's that, you know, it, it, it tells you right there in the name. But despite this, however, you know, it was the best version on the market at the time. And, you know, the itera- this iter- particular iteration of the bicycle, it did it did okay. It was a reasonably popular one. It sold, oh, sold reasonably well, in not just in Western Europe, but also in the United States, in Canada, on the other side of the Atlantic. But ultimately, it wasn't to last. The bone shaker fell out of popularity within a couple of years. As we move into the 1870s, it became less and less popular and was ultimately eclipsed by a different kind of bicycle, one I'm sure you've heard of before, and something that I guess when we're talking about old-timey, old-fashioned, you know, historical bicycles, this is the first thing that spring, would spring to your mind. Because in the 1870s, the high bicycle was invented. Today, of course, we know it as the penny farthing, although it was actually never called that during its lifetime. What was it called instead? Well, Mostly, in fact, once it caught on properly, just the bicycle. The penny farthing, uh, as it became known later, it it was so popular that it was just the bicycle. There was no other term used for it. Um, So much so that, in fact, when the next type of bicycle came along, we'll talk about in a minute, um, the penny farthing was called the ordinary bicycle so as to distinguish it from the new safety bicycle. And we'll... We will come to why the world needed a safety bicycle in the wake of the penny farthing in just a sec. But yes, for most of its lifespan, the penny farthing was never actually called the penny farthing. Uh, but you might wonder why it is called a penny farthing in the f- well, I was going to say in the first place, not the first place, in the last place, why it ended up being called a pen- being known as a penny farthing. And it wasn't because of how much it cost. That would have been very cheap indeed. No, it's because of the size of its wheels. Um, a penny farthing, as you probably know, it's a bike with one giant wheel, one enormous huge wheel at the front, and then a tiny little one behind it. Um, the rider more or less sits right on top of the giant wheel. The the frame has a small seat that sits basically on top, right on top of the uh, uh, of the huge wheel. There's a small handlebar, a small set of handlebars that you let go under as well while you're pedaling, uh, and then that little that little wheel at the back for a little bit of balance. But this wheel's huge. It's like a meter, over a meter tall. Um, and uh, to sit on top of it, you would be right on top of this massive big wheel and, you know, the little one would be behind you. And, and the name came from the relative sizes of these two uh, of these two wheels. A penny coin was much bigger than a farthing. So that gave rise to its later nickname. It was a penny and a farthing next to each other. And, and you know, based on the size of the wheels. Anyway, not that the pennies in Britain in the 19th century were like a meter tall. I think everyone is understanding. I'm speaking relative terms here. Anyway. A French bloke named Eugene Meyer, he invented the penny farthing or the high bicycle, uh, as it was called uh, in its time. Uh, you can call it what you like here. Uh, but it was a British bloke named, named James Starley who made some improvements until it resembled what you imagine the classic one uh, to look like today. Absolutely enormous front wheel, laughably large, over a metre in height with a tiny, tiny little wheel trailing behind. They are the silliest looking things, but... They were actually much more efficient to ride, if you'll believe it, than the bone shakers. Why? Well, 
remember what I said before about having pedals that are affixed directly to a wheel and how it means the wheel turns at a one-to-one ratio with your feet. Every time your feet go in one circle, that may, you know, a foot pushing a pedal goes in a circle, that's one full rotation, not just of your foot, but also of the entire wheel. It means that if you've got a small wheel, one pedal-powered rotation only takes you a small distance, the circumference of the, of, of the wheel. But if you make that wheel huge, however, all of a sudden, that same pedal rotation takes you a much longer distance because the circumference of the large wheel obviously takes you a, 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 larger, a larger distance forward. So they may look ridiculously unwieldy, but they were actually much more efficient than their more normal-looking predecessors made, by, made in 1864 by a French person unknown. They were, in fact, very bloody quick. You could build up quite a bit of speed with one of these things, zip along at a huge clip thanks to the size of the front wheel. People used to race them. You can go and see pictures of people racing penny farthings. Incredible. But they weren't just very bloody quick. They are also very bloody dangerous too, which isn't going to surprise you. Not only were you going quickly as you pedaled along madly, you were also very high up off the ground, perched rather precariously, as I said, and at great risk of being chucked off ass over tea kettle at the slightest disturbance here. If you bumped into something on the road, you'd go flying, usually straight in front of you. Uh, cyclists often ended up with two broken wrists after being thrown off because, you know, they would try to they'd throw their hands out to break their fall and they'd break not only their fall, but also, you know, both their wrists, as I say. But if you didn't fall forward, you'd fall to the side, which was a, a whole new and exciting type of problem here. Because you couldn't really use your legs to stabilize yourself as you can today on a modern bicycle. You can't really put, you couldn't, well, first of all, you're falling from, again, over a meter up in the air and putting your leg down isn't going to be the easy thing to do there to stop yourself from getting hurt. But the legs were usually tucked under the handlebars. So you couldn't just jump off. You couldn't just disentangle yourself from the bike and make a smooth landing. Usually you would keel over. Obviously you've got one, one leg on either side of this massive wheel. Usually you just keel over and slam down onto the pavement like this. So you'd be face planning no matter which way you fell off, right? Forward or, the, or to the side. It was not a very easy thing to, as I say, disentangle yourself from in the case in the, in the case of an accident. And there were a lot of accidents. These were difficult machines to operate. They were difficult bikes to ride. And given that and also the pace that went with them, I mean, in short, they weren't very safe at all. But that did nothing to affect their popularity, particularly with young men who, of course, are so often imbecilically attracted to any activity that involves pointless danger. They weren't very popular with women, um, but not because of the danger necessarily, uh, because prevailing women's fashion made them basically impossible to ride. When you're wearing, obviously, a great big dress like the like women used to, to wear in the Victorian era, it wasn't even close to possible to even get on a penny farthing, let alone ride the damn thing. And so as a result, they were mainly ridden by men. Although, I have to say, this isn't the end of the story when it comes to women and bicycles, as you'll see. We'll get to that in just, uh, in just a tick. In any case, the penny farthing, quite a popular machine, quite a popular bike. Uh, and for those who didn't fancy the danger of the two-wheeled versions, there were also three-wheeled versions that were made, although, unfortunately, these weren't referred to as penny hay pennies. Um, uh, easy to ride. You weren't going to topple off in the same way, a little, a little bit more, a little bit more stable on the ground. Um, but even then, on top of that, there are other devices, very weird. You can go and look at them. I mean, to call them bicycles, I guess technically they're more like tricycles or again, quadricycles, but these ones didn't involve you sitting, uh, miles up in the air. They were much heavier, much slower as a result. They had that weird pedaling mechanisms, uh, as well, but, uh, they're a lot safer 
and uh, you weren't going to you know topple off and break both your wrists as you fell. Uh, very strange looking devices. You can go and have a look at uh, some of these. Again, all all based around the fact that you wanted one of the wheels to be as big the, the wheel that was being pedaled to be as big as possible to make your pedaling as as efficient as possible. Get as much distance out of uh, out of each pedal. Anyway. Even these tricycles, even these quadricycles, even these other weird bikes, quote unquote, weren't enough to fill the market for those looking for a, a, a safer and a more reliable way to get around that wasn't going to, you know, break both your wrists or get tangled up in your petticoats. And so now we move in to the 1880s and 1890s and introduce the safety bicycle. Now, you may have wondered why the successor to the high bicycle was called the safety bicycle, and I trust your you know, not wondering that anymore. The high bicycle uh, was obviously a very dangerous thing to ride. And so, I don't know, man, probably a, a, a plank with two wheels nailed to it would have been a little bit safer for anyone to use uh, from that point onwards. But the safety bicycle, it uh, completely eclipsed the penny farthing, the high bicycle, uh, which became known as the ordinary bicycle after the introduction of the safety bicycle. Uh, you know, Ordinary bicycle, as though it's ordinary to wobble about in a metre high wheel and faceplant every time you hit a pothole. But, you know, in all seriousness, the safety bicycle was a massive turning point uh, in the history of the, of the bicycle. It opened up technolo- this technology to, to a hugely, hugely much wider area of a, a much wider section of society, not just daredevil young men. There were, uh, you know, people who were older and opened up to women as well. And, and, and the safety bicycle, I really have to say, was a, a huge step forward in the development of this technology. In 1885, a British bloke named John Kemp Starley, he invented what would go on to be called the safety bicycle. He never patented it, although his his uh, version of it, the Rover, was very, very popular indeed, an iconic bicycle. Uh, it looked much more like an old velocipede. Obviously, it didn't look like a penny farthing. It had wheels of relatively even size, and the front one was steerable, of course, but it had one more thing, one innovation that completely changed the game when it came to bicycle design. An innovation that has been improved upon, but never replaced, even to this very day. The safety bicycle was made possible thanks to one thing, the chain drive. Modern bicycles still use the chain drive today. Obviously, as I say, it's been improved upon, it's been iterated upon, there have been technological innovations that have made chain drives better, but they've never been replaced. By attaching pedals to a large sprocket, which a chain then connected to a small sprocket, you could finally break the one-to-one pedal rotation to wheel rotation ratio that previously determined a bike speed. If you rotate a big sprocket once, right, that's attached to a small sprocket, the small sprocket that it's chained to will rotate many times. And now you're able to travel at fast speeds without using massive wheels because one turn of your feet on the pedals equals a lot more turns of the wheel that is attached to the smaller sprocket. An ingenious device, an ingenious way to transfer energy from your legs to a wheel. And it was, as I say, a total, a complete game changer. If you go online and look at pictures of early uh, safety bicycles from the 1880s, you'll notice that they are, in you know, in broad terms, largely similar to modern bicycles. The fundamentals of the design hasn't changed all that much since the addition to the chain drive in, what, 100, 130, 140 years. And when it comes to safety, well, now a fall on a bicycle didn't involve toppling over a metre in the air, but the real, the, 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 the real groundbreaking change that was involved with the chain drive was that you didn't have to pedal the wheel that you were steering. 
Now your feet aren't getting stuck in the spokes as you turn. You could get around corners without, you know, chewing up your toes in the in the in the mechanisms of the bike because, of course, the chain drive connects. Uh, these pedals are independent of both the wheels, but connected to the back wheel and not the front wheel. No longer are you actually directly pedaling the wheel; it's the chain that's doing the work. And so your feet are being kept clear of the wheels as they turn and 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 steer you left or right or, or spit around. So this was a this was a huge change. And it was, and, and what's more, it, it doesn't stop there, right? Because in 1888, a couple of years after this, John Dunlop invented the pneumatic bicycle tire. And this meant that your bones no longer had to shake quite so much at every bump and pothole in the road. The pneumatic tire obviously was a, a another huge step forward, and we still use them today once again in terms of shock absorption and uh, and giving you a much smoother, much more comfortable ride on things like cobbled streets or anything that wasn't basically just a dirt road. The only roads that were even remotely smooth for uh, and even then they they weren't that pleasant to ride on a bone shaker. But the pneumatic tire obviously changed the game again. So. All of these inventions, all of these innovations, all of these bits of new technology, they came together and created the safety bicycle at a normal height off the ground, gear-driven pedaling, better steering, inflated rubber tires, absolutely brilliant. Bikes became a lot, a lot better, a lot safer, a lot more rideable, and all of a sudden, a lot more people are riding them. And a significant proportion of the people riding these new bikes were, in fact, women with bikes designed specifically with women's fashion in mind. In fact, bicycles had a huge influence on on women, their role in society, and and the feminist movement more broadly of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. As a whole, bicycles were uh, were quite impactful on on this, uh, this period of social change. Women's, uh, let's talk on a technical level here, women's bicycles were designed without a straight top tube. Um, uh, A man's bike has a a bar that you throw your leg over. Uh, It sort of goes between the the handlebars and the seat. You you, you know the one I'm thinking of. Whereas a a woman's bike uh, had a step-through frame with a U-shaped top tube, made it it much easier to get on a bike uh, while wearing, you know, a a big Victorian dress, your petticoats, whatever else like that. I mean, I I don't know if they were... Riding about in ball gowns, but the fact of the matter is, while wearing a dress, uh, these bicycles made it a lot easier to, to actually, you know, mount the things and also ride about because there wasn't a uh, this um, uh, the top tube, you know, in in the way of a of a dress. So this innovation, this change in the design of bicycles for women, it allowed them to ride bikes again, as I say, wearing these dresses. And given how generally affordable bikes were, I mean, you know, they weren't widely available to all sections of society particularly you know the lower classes the working class they, they might may, may have still been out of reach for, for many people uh, who, who were at or around the poverty line but still a, a a much broader section of society was now able to access a form of personal transport right and women were given an amount of mobility thanks to the bicycle, that they didn't have before. You know, I'm talking about social mobility. I'm talking about literal mobility just to get out and about under their own steam. They weren't restricted to domesticity, to to the house and the home as they had been in the same way for however many years. Now, you know, the bike was a a, a very important tool for women as they sought their their social and political freedoms. Now, look, I'm not saying the bike came along and fixed all of the deep-seated historical and structural issues that women face in seeking a a voice and a place in society and politics, that battle is still being fought today. So the bike obviously hasn't solved everything. But now, 
with bicycles getting becoming you know safer and more and more popular and also designed specifically for women to use women now had a way to get out and about and in some cases see the world Annie Londonderry the famous feminist she became the first woman to ride around the entire world on a bicycle in uh, in 1894-95 and more broadly, women would go on bike tours, on, on, you know, adventure holidays with guidebooks and equipment produced specifically for this type of adventurer who wanted to get out and about. And it went further. Specialised clothing was made for female cyclists, dress with, uh, dresses with skirts that could be pulled up or even split down the legs and turned into bloomers. And of course, of course, there was Endless opposition from men everywhere. Many men huffed and puffed about this being inappropriate and unladylike and shameful. And this was in addition to being opposed to, you know, women taking more control of their lives, where they went, who they went there with, how they got around, how much of the world they were able to see for themselves. All sorts of ridiculous opposition to women riding bikes was put forth, particularly interestingly by doctors who did all the usual nonsense about women's bodies being weak and unable to cope with the strain of exercise, blah, blah, blah. In addition to, I, I, I suppose I should warn you at this point, this bit's going to be a little bit more <clears throat> grown up. So uh, if you've got kids listening, maybe just uh, maybe just skip forward a minute or two here because this one, uh, it's going to get a little uh, a little blue. Victorian doctors, and obviously their, you know, their stuffy morals, they also claimed that women riding bikes was sexually immoral because, you know, women would use riding a bike to knock one out as they were cutting about. The The prevailing attitudes on young women and sex at this time was, of course, all about purity and chastity and all that garbage. And so doctors were worried that women's would be, I don't know, blasting themselves on the saddle as they rode. It was ridiculous. It, 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 not even really a health issue as well that doctors are weighing in on here. It's just a moral issue. But of course, all these male doctors are up in arms about it, as, as so many men were as well. But that's always the way, isn't it? We men, we've spent most of human history making sure women don't, don't get to do all the fun stuff in life. I'm, I'm sorry about that. A lot of us are trying to do better these days, but obviously it's still rubbish. Anyway, long story short, the bike played an important role in offering women some sense of liberation, some sense of social mobility and the capacity to get out and about, throw off the shackles of domesticity, challenge their, uh, their societal role. And even today, some people still see bikes as a feminist icon. The famous suffragette Susan B. Anthony once said of cycling, she said, <clears throat> I think it has done more to emancipate women than anything else in the world. I stand and rejoice every time I see a woman ride by on a wheel. Anyway, as we move into the 20th century, some important developments and improvements were made to safety bicycles. Of course, it's a never-ending process. These uh, devices kept on being tinkered with and innovated upon, iterated on, that sort of stuff. Um, and, and, and safety bicycles, given the role that they played as just the, the default kind of bicycle, as we move into the 20th century, we stopped calling them safety bicycles and just started calling them bicycles. In the first decade of the 20th century, people began to do things like mount multiple sprockets of differing sizes next to one another as part of the chain drive, along with a mechanism to move the chain from one sprocket to another. The derailleur, as it's called, it meant that you could change gears as demanded by the terrain while riding, although many in the cycling world were, were slow to adopt it. Different. I mean, I mean anyone who has ridden, ridden a, a, a bike that has more than one gear will know that you can adjust the, the speed or the gear of a bike to, uh, to account for whether you're going uphill, downhill, whatever else. So this was an 
important step forward, but as I say, many were slow to adopt it, in particular racing organisations who forbade the use of the derailleur in races until around the 1930s. Before that, if you wanted to change gear, you had to get off your bike, right, take your back wheel off, manually flip it over to the other side to have a sprocket on the other side of the wheel as well. So you were limited to two gears at a maximum, but obviously this ended up changing, race times plummeted, and the modern sport of cycling, you know, went off in the direction that it went off with, of course, gears used in uh, in many different types of racing, although not all of them, as we'll discover, as we'll talk about here. And, uh, you know, derailleurs became such a integral part of, of the design of bicycles. Most commonly sold bikes today, road bikes, mountain bikes, whatever else, they've all got derailleurs, the many gears that come with them, uh, while obviously, you know, single-speed bikes and fixies stick with uh, with just the one. But as time passed, what the next major development across the 20th century really well it wasn't one major development it was many that were made to bicycles as they became more specialized for different roles right depending on the purpose that they were being used for bikes were built in certain ways to fulfill those purposes for example one use that bikes were put to was in military service bikes were used by militaries in both world wars some cases they replaced horses as they're you know a lot more fuel efficient and, and in some cases just as speedy uh, there are stories of bicycle corps on both sides of the uh, on both sides of both wars. They were used for scouting, relaying messages, even as highly mobile reserve forces. All sorts of stuff bikes were used for. wasn't really a sort of headline act, but you can go and see some of the incredible things that uh, that the, that bicycle corps of various armies did in World War One, World War Two. But of course, they didn't last. Largely speaking, motor vehicles came became much more popular in in military circles. But even today, there are some armies that still in the in Finland they still incorporate uh, bikes into their recruit training, and um, and the Swiss Army only disbanded their their bicycle regiment, official an actual proper bicycle regiment. It was only disbanded in two thousand and one, but. Even if bikes didn't last in military circles past the world wars, bikes remained popular in many parts of the world and, as I say, continued to change and develop based on the purpose that they were being used for. From the 1950s onwards, lightweight racing bikes that were built for speed above all else began to be produced en masse. These had large, thin wheels with small and light frames, drop handlebars, high seats. Racing bikes were harder to ride but allowed you to go very, very bloody quick. Not the most comfortable way to get around, but certainly one of the speediest if you want to travel on bicycle on on a bike. You know, um, and, and the posture that it is adopted with a with a you know anyone riding a bike. You know, you sort of leaning with your torso parallel to the uh, to the top tube and uh, with your head lo- you know almost down as low as your bum as you as you as you zip along and it, it allows you to put as much energy as efficiently as possible into the bike and, and and go as quickly as possible. And even today, you know, we're seeing racing bike design improve, improve, improve. But at the other end of the spectrum, uh, uh, trading speed for comfort, trading lightweight, uh, you know, thin frames for for something a bit hardier, a bit du- a bit more durable, was the cruiser bike. Heavy, hard wearing, but comfortable and very easy to ride. Thick tires, flat handlebars, a lower seat that allowed you to sit upright comfortably, and again, a very durable and tough frame. They're not quick, but they are reliable. They're safe. And uh, they remained very popular all the way through the 1970s, kind of faded out a little bit at that point. But uh, in recent years, they've made a bit of a comeback. You see people cutting about on on cruises these days and uh, they're at a very, you know, they're a good looking bicycle. They're, they're thick and chunky, but again, comfortable, safe, easy to ride. And, uh, and it, it's good to see, you know, this design of bicycle has stuck around. 
In the 1970s as well, BMX bikes. I'm sure you know what these look like. Small, compact bikes. They've got very, very small wheels, thick tubes. Um, They emerged as a way for young people to emulate motocross riders. That was how they emerged as, you know, as as young people wanted to... uh, to uh, you know, pull off all the tricks and everything else that uh, people on motorbikes would do. So BMX bikes emerged as a result of that. We move into the 1980s where mountain bikes began to be uh, commercially available as bikes became more of a recreational part-time, a pastime than a practical one. By this stage, you know, more and more people are driving cars. But mountain bikes offered people a way to, uh, you know, to again, it was sort of a, a, a more of an adventuring bike, you know, on a weekend away, something like that. You could cut about, go off-road, go up a hill, down here, whatever else they're like that. Uh, mountain bikes, rugged, tough, thick tires with the, you know, the knobbly bits on them designed to handle all types of terrain. And I'll tell you this, I mean, you probably know this already, in the years after they were released, they quickly became the most popular kind of bike in terms of sales. And even today, you know, if you go into a bike shop, you'll see mountain bikes are amongst the amongst the most popular or the most uh, common type of bicycle that you can buy uh, even these days. But more recently, as we move close towards the 20, uh, 21st century here, city or commuter bikes have taken off. Now, these fall somewhere in between a mountain and a racing bike, elements of both. They offer a trade-off between comfort and speed. They're both, you know, a, 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 they're relatively lightweight, but still durable. Again, it's a, it's a sort of midway point. And I guess we can't talk about 21st century bicycling without also talking about recumbent bicycles, the ones that you kind of lie down on rather than sitting like you're in a chaise longue. I mean... I don't really know what's going on with them, but look, I'm not here to yuck anyone's yum. Whatever works for you, dad. It's, I mean, it's always a dad in one of them, isn't it? It's just the biggest dad energy. They're there with their socks and their sandals and the snap and the barbecue tongs before they use it. It's just, just the biggest dad energy comes off them things. But hey, again, if that's what works for you, fill your boots. Anyway. All of these bikes that I've mentioned, as we've done this little whirlwind tour of developments in in bicycles across the 20th century, all of these bikes, racing bikes, roses, BMX, mountain bikes, city bikes, even recumbent bicycles, they all stem from the safety bicycle. And the reason that we don't talk in such greater detail about the changes that were made across the 20th century, even though bikes have changed in, 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 you know, to some extent in form and, and certainly in function, Fundamentally, all these fancy things, disc brakes, suspension, carbon fiber frames, all the rest of it, right? All of these are built upon the basic design of the bicycle that hasn't changed all that much at all since the addition of the chain drive back in 1885. Since then, bicycles have, have they've offered us mobility, they've offered us freedom, and they ask very little of us in return. They're simple machines. They require little maintenance, much of which you can learn to do on your own. It's they're very, very easy things to look after. And the only fuel you need is the stuff that you'd be eating anyway. They really are wonderful devices. And we're very, very lucky to have them. Even in an age of cars and planes and everything else, the humble bicycle, despite taking us so long to getting around to invent... It is still one of the nicest ways to cut about on a sunny afternoon.
But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the history of the bicycle. And again, look, I'm not going to try to hide the fact that I bloody love bikes. And certainly that probably was reflected in here. I mean, you know, some people, sometimes I get emails from people going, oh, be less biased, blah, blah, blah. You're a historian. It's your job to present the facts and just the facts. But look, Stick it up your ass, mate. I bloody love bikes, and I'm going to be as biased as I want when I talk about them. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the episode half as much as I enjoyed putting it together because it was a lot of fun to learn about these things, particularly all the nonsense about the old ones and penny farthings and whatnot. So I do hope you enjoyed the episode. A couple of quick housekeeping things before we close out the show, of course. Uh, halfhousehistory.net is the website. Patreon.com slash halfhousehistory is where you can support the show financially if you so choose. There's a contact form on uh, the website if you want to get in touch with any episode suggestions or you can join my discord server bit.ly slash join riley's discord if you scroll down you'll find um an episode or a topic suggestion uh topic suggestion channel in addition to a half hour history discussion board if you want to chat with other fans uh, and a special thank you of course goes to not just the people who are supporting me on patreon week in week out thank you so much to all my exalted patrons for, uh, for for keeping the show afloat but also to the people who are out there sh- uh, spreading the good word of half hour history it is greatly appreciated thank you so much to everyone who's trying to get other people on board gotta get those numbers up of course say it every week but that's that i'll see you next week for more half hour history until then leaving you with a question here now i mean <laughs> I guess we did a little bit of science chat today, you know, talking about the ratios and the bloody gear chains and whatever else, all that sort of stuff. But, you know, often we like to end the show with a, with a bit of a gag, a bit of a joke. But I do want to leave you this question because this one is an important science-based physics question. I certainly don't know the answer. I would love to know what it is. But obviously, I apologize to those of you who stick around for, for the funny joke at the end of it. But this one, this one, I mean, just an interesting science question, really. And, and again, if you've got any idea, please let me know because I, I would love to know the answer to this question. It comes to us from Guy Lex Corp off Reddit who, uh, who wants to know, <clears throat> does farting while riding a bicycle provide a measurable additional thrust?